I'm a uh, father of three. You might have seen me at the back with children hanging off every limb. And this means a few things. This means I'm always tired. I am always grumpy. So much, in fact, that I'm thinking about appealing to God to try and add it into the list of the gifts of the Spirit. Do you think he would go for it? Just know peace, patient, kindness, grumpiness. So that I no longer have to apologise for it. Honestly, I apologise for my grumpiness, particularly to my family, at least three times a day. I'm sure the Lord will mature my spirit at some point. And I'm constantly, constantly distracted and forgetful. But they're a joy. This one here is my firstborn, my eldest. You might have seen her dancing around. She, she praises Jesus by dancing with just this incredible freedom that uh, leads me, actually. Um, her name is Erin. She's very beautiful. She is very mischievous. And I think, apart from my wife, she has been the greatest teacher to me from a human perspective in my life. I wanted to share some of the things I've learned. I've learned about myself, just how much I can love one small person. I've learned from her ability to take joy in absolutely everything, that everything can, you can find joy in it. Remarkable lessons. I've learned from her to cherish moments because they have come and are gone so fast. She changes daily. I have to sort of like take these little photographic snapshots in my mind of her growing up, of her shifting. Even today, I was like, wow, you're more mature than you were yesterday. I wish I could remember yesterday better. But, you know, alongside this, as a father of a firstborn, I've also learned some harder things. I've already touched on some. I've learned about my selfish temperament. That it's there, it's clear, and it's very apparent. And I've learned some things about true discipline. So I've learned that true discipline of a child really hurts to deliver as a father. Because delivering it has a cost for you as a parent as well. So I'll give you an example. Actually, we, the, this afternoon, would normally have like a family movie time where we all snuggle in and we'll watch some, some kids' film. I'll cry at the emotional bits. It'll be, it'll be great. Lots of fun as a family. Just, just good time together. And unfortunately, Erin has lost it this Sunday because of some really poor behaviour earlier on in the week. And do you know what? It sounds small, but it really hurts. It hurts her because she really loves it, and it hurts me because I really love to have it there. But without it meaning something, without it genuinely meaning something to both of us, there's no, there's no discipline there. So I've learnt this. The true discipline hurts, and it's a hard lesson. And you know, the other lesson I've learned has been about the effect she has on my other children. What we do and have done with Erin seems to set the tone for the other children, where she modelled respect and love for us. They do just very naturally. Not always, because they're their own little people, but there's definitely a tone that she sets. There's a natural leadership given to the firstborn, where the natural thing for the other kids to do is take on some of the things we've taught her. Bedtimes would be one. We had a nightmare with Erin at bedtimes. The other two, no problem, because what did they see? They saw their big sister behaving in that way. For better or worse, they copy and learn from her. And this has been a tough le lesson, because 
where we haven't shaped or done well as parents, we can see that already go through our children. Like in the 6am moan fest that happens every morning in our household, I do not know how to stop it. You can learn a lot from firstborns. A lot. And the same is true in the Bible. You know, the um, first firstborn in the Bible and his story, which is one that can only be described as the greatest tragedy ever documented, is found in Genesis, the book of beginnings. Uh, We can learn a lot just by looking at the stories of these people and this morning I just want to retell it in a way that we can understand some of the some of the bits of it and then just look at a couple of lessons that we learn from it. Adam's tragedy is found at the very beginning of Genesis, the book of beginnings in the Bible. And this story is a tragedy because Adam, we find, was given an incredible place of privilege that he lost. You see, Adam, the very first man of mankind as we know it, we find came about just 26 verses into the Bible, and he is the full stop, the final brushstroke, the resolving, completing note, if you like, of God's creative masterpiece, the universe. A universe which starts in Genesis 1, 1 to 10, with God conceiving out of absolute nothingness the unimaginably vast, wondrous and mesmerising expanse that is the cosmos. Creating the light that was the cornerstone of everything else and placing within this glowing expanse a complete mathematical anomaly, the earth a place that he could perfectly fine-tune to sustain all the life that reflected his glory. Then in Genesis 1, 6-19, God begins his fine-tuning of this planet Earth, the focal point of his work, sculpting the land out of the ocean and miraculously calling it to bear vegetation of all kinds. And as the first plants are pulled from the ground, He formalised the sustaining, life-giving, time-keeping structures in the galaxy and beyond, the sun, the moon, the stars. Then when all was ready, the ecosystem was right. We read in Genesis 1, 20-25 that creatures were formed, first from the oceans and the skies, which were filled with swarming flocks of life. Then on the land, great beasts of the earth and livestock were brought forth by the word of his mouth. And finally, finally, when the earth teemed with life in an expanse of infinite wonder and beauty, in Genesis 1.26, Adam, his first firstborn man, was created. Where God miraculously formed him from the dust of the ground, like a master potter tenderly shaping his work, then breathed his very spirit, the very spirit of God into him to give him life. And instantly we see in this final act of creation, of kick-starting creation, 
Adam has a totally unique and privileged nature and role in this beautiful, teeming, creative world that God has created. In Genesis 1.26, God says this about Adam. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.26. And here in this passage we see two things that I want to just drill home to you. Out of the entirety of this masterpiece that God had just created, Adam was uniquely wonderful. The only crafted thing to bear God's image in the creation story. To be made to resemble and reflect him in nature, character, intellect, relationship and creativity. Utterly unique was this man, this firstborn. And secondly, we see that Adam was given a position alongside us of unique responsibility to rule or have lordship over the world around him on God's behalf. He gives gives Adam in this passage the responsibility to look after, to use the resources of and to establish a kingdom over the world on his behalf, like a steward of one of the great houses of old on behalf of his master. And here he shows a little bit like Aaron, that as the firstborn, he was going to lead the way, set the tone for everyone and everything that came after him on earth with a natural authority. So it was a position of incredible privilege. Do you see this? Does that make sense? He was the pinnacle of God's creation. Alongside this, in this place of privilege, We see that God, in addition to it, gives incredibly generously to Adam, giving him a home in the Garden of Eden, where God, we find out, met his every need and then some. Genesis 2 verse 8, we read, God made to spring up in the garden every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. He gave him food and resource and beauty surrounding him. Then he gives him a purpose in this place, a place in the family business of gardening and creating, if you like. We're told he was given work to upkeep the garden in verse 15. And finally, he gives him companionship and love, creating the first woman from him as he slept. Because we find out it was bad for Adam to be alone. Verse 18, I told you that my wife was my greatest teacher. That's been my greatest lesson. It would be bad for me to be alone. Really bad. And in this place, God was constantly with him. We read he walked with him. Eden was a place where the firstborn son, this uniquely privileged one in relation, in creation, was outworking God's rule, in God's presence, knowing God's abundant provision. It was a place of complete blessing. The first part, the first half of Adam's story is about remarkable love and favour. The second is sadly not so. Do you know, like every other parent, loving parent does to a child, 
as well as wanting to bless and give purpose and goodness to their children, we found out in the garden God had set boundaries for his firstborn, a limit to what Adam and Eve were allowed to do. A boundary that to overstep would be harmful. It's a little bit like me saying to Erin, you can play with all the toys in the playroom that we've given you. You play with anything in the house, but do not play with the matches. We don't leave those in the playroom. Don't play with the matches, because if you play with the matches, you will set a light to things and you will die. You will burn things down. That is not funny. To laugh at my... Yeah, well, yeah, there was a big, there was a stretch, but you get the point, don't you? Like, there's a... <laughs> I can't believe you laughed at that. You're a school teacher, Tom. Yeah, don't feed with the, another example. Don't f- feed the ducks, but don't swim with them. It's dangerous. Less graphic, that one. I love you, he's saying, with these boundaries. Don't do this, it will, it will harm you. <laughs> Some of your analogies work when preaching, some don't. It's just, it's just part of what you have to deal with. God's limits. You know, and actually, what we find out here is that God's limits in the garden don't look particularly difficult for Adam to keep, or particularly big. In fact, he gives one boundary, one rule alone, in this garden of abundance that he has created for him, and it is this. Eat from any tree of the garden. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So God makes the jump as well. So it's all right. Match is there. In this garden of abundant favour, God didn't want them to eat from one single tree that he had planted. A tree whose fruit, when eaten, would lead to them understanding that there is a difference between the fruit of good and the fruit of evil, that would ultimately mean they would die. What, what was this boundary about? It's a big one in the Bible. I, do you know, as a father, I'm not sure I would plant such a poisonous tree in the vicinity of my child and say, don't touch. To plant at the end of Aaron's bed a hemlock and say to Elijah, just don't touch it, mate. It's dangerous. Needless to say, I think this is the wrong way to look at this tree. I think... Here we see God use something very simple to show his firstborn, in context, the unequivocal nature and risk of all sin. Of all sin. And explaining to him, do not go there because the consequences are grave. You see, all sin in its basic form shares two things with the tree in God's command. All sin is firstly an act of disobeying God's good boundaries in our life, straying from what he says is a healthy, good way to live. Sin is saying we do not trust the boundaries that you set, Lord. Secondly, sin is a place where we exchange all the good fruit that God has given us and the results of a life with him for fruit that might taste good initially, but ultimately will bring the opposite of a life abundant to us. Death. The tree was the way of establishing in Adam, right from the start, the dawn of history, the danger of such acts of disobedience and the risks associated with gaining a heart that understood 
the difference between good and evil. You know, to my shame, I had to do a speed awareness course last year. More so as I had the four points in the back of my car. Don't laugh at that. That is ri- Honestly, I'm ashamed of this. I'm ashamed of this. Rightly so. Oh, I was rushing to get to the cinema. As part of this, they showed us a video which vividly spelled out the consequences of speeding in a 30-mile-an-hour speed zone and showed a child dying. And although it was dramatized to leave an imprint, it outlined the real consequences of this behavior. And it was designed to pre-warn me not to behave in this way and to guide my behavior. The option is there to speed. It might even feel good to do it sometimes. You might even feel justified in doing it sometimes because you're late for a film. But don't do it. That was the message. The consequences are grave. This is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about. It's God the Father hanging a picture of forewarning in the Garden of Eden for his firstborn son so that he could always see and never forget the danger of sin to his earth. The tragedy happened, however. Initially, everything seems okay with this setup. Adam and his first wife live without shame or fear or lust, just knowing God's presence and goodness. But then the day came when Adam and Eve were by the tree and an influencer, the serpent, came along who wanted them to be disobedient to God and began to sow the seeds of mistrust in God's word, indicating that God's word was not really not to eat from the tree. And actually, if he had wanted this, he'd only wanted it to control them, to prevent them knowing some truths in life, to hold them back, to keep them from being wise like God. It was about limiting them, not protecting them. If you eat from this tree, the serpent said, you will not surely die. God knows when your eyes will be open, you will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, 4 to 5. The crafty liar got them to fix their eyes on and desire what God had told them was not good for them. Rather than all of the amazing things God had undeservedly given them. And Eve, we read in Genesis 3, was convinced. And she took some fruit and she ate. And then we find that the firstborn, the first firstborn in humanity, who was with her, we read in Genesis 3, 6, tells us. She was with her as she was convinced by the deceiving one. With her as she moved to the tree and picked up the fruit herself and put it to her lips was past some of the fruit, we're told in this moment, and also ate for the first time. Rather than drawing on his God-given authority, his place of privilege, the knowledge God had already given him that he was made in his image, the knowledge of what it was like to live with God and in his presence, or the evidence that God was good from the abundance of creation that God had given them. Rather than intervening and crushing the snake's lies, staying his wife's hand and saying no to the fruit of disobedience and disbelief to his father, 
He gave power over to the tempter, Satan, and he ate. Sowing in the heart, in his heart, in the hearts of all humanity, the seeds of something that God had said was devastating for it. A knowledge of good and evil. To know the fruit of evil and what it tastes like. There's something we really need to understand here. Now, this wasn't just like a bad child doing something naughty that could be disciplined and then quickly forgiven. But this first sin caused a fundamental change in man's nature. It put dangerous things in the heart of man that were not there before. Before this, Adam and Eve were sinless, blameless, pure. That would be adopted in every generation that came after Adam as he led them. All of a sudden, in this moment, humanity knew its greatest illness. An illness that would be common to all mankind. The attraction of sin and the burden of shame and guilt and the desire to run from God that came from disobedience and living outside of his boundaries and ultimately death. And we read, in this state, Adam and Eve's relationship with God was broken for the first time. They tried to hide things from God for the first time. And Adam tried to excuse his behavior. It wasn't me, it was the woman who ate from the fruit. She gave it to me. Rather than trust God, they started to want to take control. Sin fundamentally changed their nature and broke from our end the relationship with God that God designed us for. And like any good father, God's response to the first firstborn's grave sin was not passivity, to do nothing and to say it was okay, not really that bad. That is not the lesson he wanted to leave his son or the people he knew would follow him with. He had to teach them of the gravity of their actions. And the only way was an act of painful fatherly discipline, like I described with Aaron on a much grander scale. So in the end of Genesis 3, he acted. Man's nature had been so damaged by the act of his firstborn that he could not leave him in the abundance and the protection of the garden and his presence to let this seeds of sin and man's broken nature grow eternally in this environment. The horror and the evil would be too much. Imagine an eternal Hitler, an eternal Pol Pot, an eternal Mugabe or any human leader ruling without end. Allowing a man to govern his world on his his behalf eternally in this way. This would be unimaginably wrong for a good God to allow. So even though what he always wanted for his sons and his offspring was to eternally be with them in the good garden of his abundance, he painfully disciplined man and cast him out. And so making Adam and his wife clothes He put them out of the garden and blocked their way. Taking away the gardens where his presence was, where everlasting and abundant life was, into the world where he would have to toil with his hands all of his finite days. And the consequences of following sin or God would be plainly seen. This is the great tragedy of the firstborn, the loss of privilege. 
under his leadership, his actions, he broke and lost for all mankind the privileged nature man had been given, the privileged relationship man had been given, the life of abundance God had intended for them. Make no mistake, the Bible starts with a tragedy. And one thing you cannot get away from, though, in this act of casting down and out by God, is like any good act of fatherly discipline. God has an eye fixed on the future restoration of the child. You see, woven into all of God's judgment and all of this breaking, there is a promise made to the snake that deceived in Genesis 3.15, that one day a seed would come from the offspring of the woman who rather than listen to the lies coming from the snake's mouth, would do what Adam should have as a firstborn and crush the snake's head, seeing an end to his work, even though this would come with being bitten by the snake. One day the snake's lies would be undone by another man. That's the first firstborn story. And I've said we can learn a lot from it. So no, there's too many things to say today. That we can learn from this. I know uh, uh, the Prendres are both studying this at the moment and they've been doing it for months, this, this passage of scripture and all the things you can get out of it. But I just want to pick out three simple themes. Firstly, it teaches us something about God's nature that we have to get. Foundational teaching about God's nature. This story that comes before every other story in the Bible, teaches us that God, first and foremost, yes, he is a mighty creator of everything, but also he is a loving father. He is a loving father. Where, just like my kids are to me, and more so, his sons and daughters, mankind, are the apple of his eye. In his mind, they are the best thing he could ever have created. He wanted to give all of the fruits of his world to them, his perfect support, perfect guidance, a securing relationship, a protecting relationship, eternal life. He wanted to protect them from death, and he loved them enough that he tried to protect them from harm and disciplined them when that harm came. You see, the picture tells us God is a loving Father, I'm just going to stop here because as I was preparing, I felt like I had to stop and minister to you know. Who is the picture of God to you primarily? Is he a legal guy who just says no, that's wrong, no, that's right? Is he an angry God all the time? We say the Bible says that that God hates sin. It does. It says before that. Before that, he is a loving father who created you. He wants to know you and live with you and pour out abundant blessing on your life. So we learn something about God as we read this story. Really key things. Secondly, we learn a couple of things about our nature. As people that we we understand that in coming from Adam at the beginning of time, in coming down his line, we carry an inherent dignity that we too were created by God to be the only bearers of his image. 
shaped by the same potter's hand, crafted by him in our mother's womb. There's an epidemic challenge to self-worth in our society. You're not worth anything, says the lie. You're not worth anything. What we learn from this story is you are learn ev- worth everything to your creator. You are the apple of his eye, made in his image. You carry, by being a person, absolute inherent worth. If you struggle with self-worth today, this story tells you do not struggle with self-worth anymore. Do not let that get to you. God designed you with such a worth and a dignity. Secondly, we learn, though, that there is inherent brokenness we all carry as being born into the line of Adam and mankind of Adam. That like Adam, our natures have been damaged. That we suffer from that same draw to sin, shame, guilt and hiding from God, that lack of trust in God, that desire to be our own God. That led led the need to be cast out of the garden. That is the humanity that we have been born into. One of dignity, but one of brokenness. And that our relationship with God is damaged. Our intimacy with the Father that he desires is broken. That life of abundance God wanted to pour out on us has also been damaged. And we're living on the hard-earned scraps rather than all the fruits of Eden. We learn that being in the flesh line of Adam means, yes, we are privileged, but also we are trapped and need help. And the problem stems from the core of our being. You need help just because you are built on the foundation of Adam. doesn't matter what nation you're from. Se você foi nascido em Brasil, nascimento, Nice and minus. It doesn't matter if you're born in Brazil. That's what I tried to say just then. It doesn't matter if you're born in Liverpool. You all come from this place where there is a problem with your humanity. That is what this teaches us. It's not what it was meant to be. And the third series, if you were wondering when I was going to introduce the new series, I decided to do it now to be creative, not at the beginning, halfway through. Also, most importantly, in this life, for now, there is a third seat theme that we start to see in the first firstborn story, that right at the start of the Bible, we see glimpses of Jesus and the need for the cross. You know, in the 39 books of the Old Testament, written by different authors over a time of thousands of years of history, there are thousands of little pointers. It's riddled with little pointers to Jesus. And it is tied together by one key thing. There are constant and repeating glimpses of the good news that Jesus is coming and the gospel he brings gives salvation to mankind in their broken position. You know, over the next six weeks, I'm just starting with Adam, you'll see, we are going to look at six, we're going to show you that this is the case, that the whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus by looking at six key figures that appear at different stages of the Old Testament story of redemption. And we're going to look at how, in their stories, Jesus is always in the mind of God. He's always there. History is building to him. And as we do this, we've got two main hopes as a leadership team as we do this series. One, that we get to understand 
the redemptive story of God better as a people. One that we get to understand the history, the big narrative that we're a part of. Do you know, if you struggle with understanding the Old Testament, this series is for you, and I hope it blesses you. But secondly, and most important, as we see these glimpses, as we add them up piece by piece, as we see them formed from character to character, from character to character, point to Jesus and understand Jesus' importance in history, our hope is that our hearts grow to appreciate Jesus as much as God does and to see that he is the centerpiece of God's history. If you want to love Jesus more, this series is for you. If you want to see him how he is, this series is for you. So I better crack on. So how in this absolute failure of a firstborn son do we see glimpses of Jesus? Well, in fact, one of the ways the New Testament most clearly asks us to understand Jesus is as the second firstborn of a new humanity that does not suffer from the sin problems. We find this idea scattered throughout the New Testament in Hebrews 1, verse 6, Romans 8, 29, and Romans 5, 12 to 20. And as we look at the parallels between Jesus and Adam's life, this role can be clearly seen. Let's look at some of them just quickly. There are more, but here are a few of them. One, Jesus, like Adam, was miraculously conceived and born of the Spirit of God, Matthew 1.20. Although there was a difference in, Jesus, in that Jesus was God, like Adam, he was the only other man in history to be born in the image of God without the corruption of sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Colossians 1.15 tells us this. Jesus, like Adam, was called to be a ruler over all creation, everlastingly on God's behalf. Find this in Isaiah 9.17 and how Matthew draws us to understand this in the chapter of Matthew 1. Jesus, like Adam's trust in God's goodness and word, was tested at the start of his ministry on earth by the deceiver, who we found out by this point in both contexts was Satan. And do you know what? The key event in the life of Jesus involved a cursed tree, just like Adam's. The cross is described as such in Galatians 3.13. It involved a cursed tree and the fruit of sin. And his interactions with this tree affected the whole of humanity. The centerpiece of both of their lives is a cursed tree. Jesus, like Adam, all, knew all the consequences of sin in his life. Separation from God, a casting out of his presence, God's painful fatherly judgment and ang anger, and a death on the cross, Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, like Adam, is seen as one who passes on his nature to all humanity who come after him, Romans 8, 20, 29. You see, just in seven things, there, there are more in there. But the pattern and purpose of Adam's life at the dawn of humanity is the same the beginning of the Old Testament points remarkably to the pattern and purpose of Jesus' life. It's so important that we see that, that even as things went wrong in creation, God was intricately weaving all of history into all of history, the blueprint for understanding Jesus and the gospel work that he was about. However, what is also so key to understand is that there are differences. 
where Adam, and the key difference is this, where Adam failed, Jesus did not. Where Jesus was tempted to mistrust God's word by Satan, he responded like this, you should not put the Lord your God to the test, Matthew 4, 17. Showing an absolute trust in God's boundaries that Adam had failed to. As such, where Adam's image and ministry was corrupted by sin, Jesus' never was. His life and ministry modelled perfectly the power, the joy and the abundant blessing that came from being unbroken under God's reign. Where Adam's disobedience led him to eat the fruit of the tree, it was Jesus' obedience to God's plan, even when this was unbearably hard to the point where he wept blood that took him to the tree of the cross. Not my will, but yours be done, led him there. Where Adam deserved the consequences of sin, Jesus bore the consequences of sin by choice on behalf of others as an act of deep love and out of the desire to restore what was broken in Adam. And where in Adam, all that came under him were defeated and corrupted by sin, Jesus' perfect life and death on behalf of others, defeated sin and overcame it. He was the seed of the woman spoken about, that although bitten by the serpent, crushed his head. All that come now to be a part of Jesus' line get to share now in his victorious, restored nature. Adam, the first firstborn, teaches the problem, sin, and points to the solution in the pattern of his life that God had always in his mind. Jesus was the solution. I just want to close. You know, in Romans 5, 12 to 21, Paul essentially says now that there are two types of humanity at work in this world. One, those who come in line with the first firstborn, Adam, who by nature remained trapped in sin, in heart corrupted, in relationship broken, and living without God's abundant blessing. And a second, those who were in the line, family, and lineage of the second firstborn, the God-man Jesus, who were born now of his nature, which did not fail, who share in his unbroken relationship, who get to live in abundance and share in his victory over sin. And the question is this. For us today. Where, which one do you want to live in? And how do you live there? How do we swap from being one, in the one mankind trapped in slavery to sin. To come under this new life in Christ. And the answer is unbelievably simple. As Adam entered corruption through not believing what God had said about a tree, we entered Jesus by doing away with the unbelief and trusting in believing in what Jesus did on the tree of the cross on our behalf. And as we take the step of correcting faith by his spirit that brought all things to life, we know the washing of forgiveness that Jesus won on our behalf. The victory over the death that Adam brought. And he birthed in us a new nature and a relationship with God and abundant life we were always intended to live. His cross, by faith, is a gateway now 
for all time for those who recognise the need to be saved from Adam's line in themselves can be helped into the line of Christ. And the key is always, as always, to trust in God and the cross. This is just one of the ways we're going to look at in this series. All of history, in a myriad of ways, points to Jesus. Adam is just the first of a long list of people. We hope you will enjoy the series and that we grow in faith together in Jesus. Shall I pray?